The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. G'day, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers Podcast. Today we're catching up with Bernard Rowe, who is Managing Director of Ioneer. Its ASX code is INR. That's India November Romeo. Ioneer is advancing its unique Rylit Ridge lithium and boron project in Nevada, in the US, towards production. Thanks to the boron, Ioneer's Made in America lithium is expected to be produced at a very low cost, possibly the lowest in the industry. It's now trading at 16 cents for a market cap of about $240 million. Welcome, Bernard, and thanks for joining us here today at Stockhead. Thanks, Barry. Great to, uh, great to be here. Before jumping into what Ioneer is up to, Bernard, could you tell us a bit about your education and professional background? Yeah, happy to. So I'm a qualified geologist. I studied geology in uh, Ballarat in Victoria. I'm a Western Victorian person, originally uh, coming from the town of Stall, where they run the Stall Gift. Many people would have heard of that. Um, so I studied geology in Ballarat. I um, started working in the exploration and mining industry, initially with Western Mining and then Ashton Mining, the diamond company. And that was back in the early 90s that I joined Ashton. Spent quite a lot of time overseas with Ashton Mining in Scandinavia and Russia and eventually West Africa. And um, uh, and that was all in mineral exploration, primarily diamonds, but some gold as well. Um, I came back to Australia uh, in the late 90s and um, started then, well, moved away from diamonds and was more involved in copper, gold and base metal uh, exploration. Mm. During that diamond hunt, did you come across any big finds that you're associated with? Uh, yeah, Ashton was pretty successful in that time. So we um, we found the Merlin deposit in the Northern Territory, which which Ashton later uh, developed into a small smallish uh, operating mine, especially particularly small by Argyle standards. Um, I wasn't directly involved myself, but Ashton also made some discoveries in Canada. We had a subsidiary company, Ashton Canada. Uh, and then in, in Finland, which was really the company's main project back in the uh, early 90, late 80s and early 90s, we found quite a lot of kim- diamondiferous kimberlite pipes in, in um, Finland and also Karelia in Russia. Unfortunately, they were a bit on the small side, so none of them were developed by us and eventually Ashton was taken over by, um, by Rio Tinto. So that was the end of that project. Mm. And is that when you finished up with Ashton, when Rio came on board? Uh, no, actually, I, I moved out of, away from Ashton about a year or so before the takeover, and you know, my move was primarily driven by a desire to um, expand, I guess, uh, out of diamond exploration, and, and hence I wanted to uh, get, get into gold and copper, and um, you know, there, there was no opportunity to do that at Ashton, so I, I left and came back to Australia. Mm. Just on diamond exploration, uh, can be incredibly expensive and uh, very frustrating. Is that part of the reason you made the jump across to copper gold? 
<laughs> uh, yeah, sure, that is part of it. It's, I mean, diamond exploration, I think, above all other um, exploration, you know, commodity exploration uh, programs, is the highest risk. The chance of success is incredibly low. Um, but for me, I, I had been doing that for seven years and I had already been in gold before that with Western Mining, in, working in Victoria, the still gold mine. Um, so really for me, seven years was enough uh, at that stage of my career in diamonds and I thought it was important to diversify uh, into other commodities and um, it was largely driven by that decision rather than mm -hmm. the, uh, the limited uh, reward, I guess, for all that hard work when you're a diamond explorer. Oh, just on stall, Bernard, um, your old managing director, Hugh Morgan, just uh, restarted. You're pretty pleased to hear that? Uh, yes, I am. Um, yeah, we've come the full circle, haven't we? Um, you know, I, I worked there in the late 80s at the mine when it was owned by Western Mining. Um, and uh, so, uh, look, it's a place that uh, I hold close to me. Um, it's actually, you know, my, my mother still lives in stall. Um, I spent many of my... Uh, youthful years there. I actually, I met my wife also at the Store Gold Mine. So uh, I am glad that Hugh's back there restarting it. And talking of the Store Gift, uh, were you a bit of a sprinter in your day? <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I, I always just walked down to Central Park. My, my parents or our family home was uh, a very short walk to the park. So I always walked and enjoyed a couple of beers rather than um, getting out on the grass. A few of my schoolmates ran, but no, I didn't. Fair enough. Now, the switch uh, in uh, the early years of uh, global geoscience was well known as a sort of Latin American-focused copper-gold explorer, then into Nevada. What made, what was the jump into lithium slash boron at Rhyolite Ridge? How did you get pick up that project and why did you decide it was the way to go? Yeah, that, that's obviously a very uh, pertinent question. Um, really, we weren't looking for out looking for lithium. Um, so, you know, we are and still are were back then uh, explorers. And so, when we would explore in an area, we always, I would say, kept our you know eyes and ears open for all opportunities as we covered ground. And you know, we did that in Peru, and we certainly had that um, approach in Nevada and Arizona as well. Uh, just purely really by coincidence, we were drilling on two gold projects down in southern Nevada um, and uh, under global geoscience. And it was through that activity in that part of Nevada that I happened to meet someone who mentioned this uh, lithium opportunity to me. And so I, I simply went and had a look because we were known in the area and uh, we were working close by. I understand the, the project itself has a bit of a history before Pioneer's arrival. Yes, it does. Uh, and actually, it's got a long history, uh, in fact. And that was one of the things that actually uh, attracted me initially, because when, when I first heard about this project, Rhyolite Ridge, um, it was described to me as being a lithium and clay deposit. And so, uh, and I didn't know a lot about them. Um, I know, knew a little bit, but I went out and had a look, given it wasn't far away from our, you know where we we're already working. And to my surprise, there was a, an adit, which is a horizontal you know, tunnel into a hill and a shaft on this white hill. And anyway, those uh, on inquiry, I found out that the shaft and the adit were about 100 years old and they were excavated or built by people looking for boron. 
and it quite surprised me because it wasn't what I was imagining in a going out to look at a lithium clay project where I was expecting the rocks to be soft and, and clay and, you know, difficult to sort of handle. Here we had this, uh, this really solid, white, competent rock that people had mined 100 years ago and, and you could still actually easily enter those workings and they were very solid uh, rock and still intact. Um, so that, that was the early part of the history. It was, it was actually looked at for boron more than 100 years ago. The, the more recent history was two-part. Uh, Rio Tinto explored the area for boron uh, in the late 80s and into the 90s. And that was part of their regional exploration that they had going on. They operate and still operate the boron mine in California and they explored parts of California and southern uh, Nevada. And Rhyolite Ridge was one project that they actually drilled back then. And they walked away from it though because the boron was all that they were interested in. Lithium wasn't of any value back at that, back at that time. This is 30 years ago. Um, and the boron that was present needed sulfuric acid or a type of acid to leach it out. And, and they weren't particularly interested in that sort of deposit at the time. Um, they did, though, acknowledge that it was the second largest uh, boron deposit in the United States at the time, uh, second only to the mine in California. Uh, the other party that explored the, in the history of the project was... Um, it was a joint venture between a small American company and Jogmec, which is the Japanese government. Now, they were did some exploration on this project around about 2010, 2011, and almost opposite to the earlier work by Rio Tinto, they only really looked at the lithium. They ignored the boron. And so they tended to focus on the parts of the deposit where lithium was highest. And those parts of the deposit tend to be that high in clay and, and, and sort of more complex to process. Uh, when, when we came along, we really are the first group to look at it and say, well, when you get the lithium and the boron together, not only do you have the increased value because you've got this dual revenue, the, the mineralogy and the type of rock changes dramatically and, and it's that difference in the rock type that allows us to use a much different sort of processing flow sheet than would otherwise be the case. So it was that that really attracted us to us was the combination of lithium and boron together. Mm. The in people in this market, so I think uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mooney Ponds are experts on lithium nowadays, but boron, most people I think wouldn't know much about the boron market, uh, what it sells for, what it's used for. Uh, is it a can it be considered a strategic metal or not? Can you just give us a bit of a snapshot on the boron market? Yeah, sure. So firstly, um, you're right. And most people wouldn't know uh, much at all about the boron market. And, and the, the main reason for that is it's a duopoly. So it's quite an opaque market. Uh, it's essentially controlled by Rio Tinto and the Turkish government because they are the two big producers. Between the two of them, that's about 80% of the world's production. Um, so you don't hear a lot in the news about boron. Uh, there's no other ASX listed companies that produce sizable quantities of boron, uh, Oricobra being uh, one exception, but they only produce a small amount of uh, boron annually from their uh, mine in Argentina. Uh, 
Boron itself, though, it's a very large market. In fact, as of today, the boron market is larger than the lithium market at about three to three and a half billion dollars worth of boron product that's sold each year. Um, where it gets used, um, the biggest use is borosilicate glass. So it's added to glass to help strengthen and harden the glass and also stop it from shrinking and expanding when it's heated and cooled so it doesn't crack. So the most common uh, home um, uh, homeware that people would use regularly and not realise it that contains boron is Pyrex cookware. Uh, put it in the oven and it doesn't crack. That's because of boron. Now, um, but boron has a myriad of other uses and you most of the listeners would have actually come into contact with multiple items that contain boron uh, every day of their lives. And some examples would be uh, textile fiberglass, which is used in carpets, is based on boron. Um, HEPA filters that are in your vacuum cleaner use boron fibres, uh, boron uh, glass fibres. Um, the the hardened or strengthened glass on your mobile phone or on your TFT computer screen or your iPad has boron in it. Um, it's used as a micronutrient in agriculture. It's used as a wood preservative for timber. It's used in uh, fiberglass insulation and it's also used uh, in electric motors. So whilst everyone thinks about lithium and the other lithium um, ion battery uh components that are all part of the EV revolution, well, uh, boron just happens to be used in the permanent magnets, which are used in electric cars and also in wind turbines, along with rare earths mm. in those in those permanent batteries. Okay. Uh, permanent magnet, sorry, I said battery, permanent magnet. Uh, just to give people a feel, what would it currently sell for, a, a tonne of boron? Yeah, so there's there's many different products, but the product that we will be, that we will be making is boric acid, and um, boric acid sells for about $700 uh, US per tonne. So um, it's nowhere near as valuable as lithium. Uh, lithium carbonate, you know, sells for roughly $10,000 a tonne, a bit more sometimes, a bit less, but average. But so, so you know, boron is uh, only about a tenth or even a little bit less than a tenth of the value. And it, but it's a very, very stable market because it's a duopoly, because there's a myriad of uses and, and all of them consume quite a lot of the product, then the prices tend to stay very stable and you don't see the same sort of volatility in price that we're currently seeing in lithium. So it's actually quite a good combination to have with the lithium in our project for those reasons. Okay. What's in your plant production scenario? What's the, the ratio between lithium and boric acid and what does that do to if you take the boron as a rather large byproduct what does that do to your effective lithium uh, carbonate expected cost of production yeah okay um again a, a good question um so when we released our pre-feasibility study last year in, in um, october last year the ratio of lithium to boron or lithium carbonate to boric acid was about eight to one, eight tonnes of boric acid for one tonne of lithium. However, we've just recently come out with a resource upgrade and we've said the ratio is now 10 to one. So uh, the boron grades have gone up um, for various reasons, which are explained in the announcement. Um, so for one tonne of lithium carbonate, we now will be producing 10 tonnes of boric acid. 
Now, using the costs that we've um, put out in the market from our pre-feasibility study, it costs us $7,200, thereabouts, $7,200 to produce that one tonne of lithium and 10 tonnes of boric acid. So at, at $700 boric acid price, you're talking about $7,000 contribution just from the boron. Mm. So your net cost to produce lithium is almost zero at $200. Um, and, and obviously, if you want to be very conservative and say, well, uh, I'm going to use a $500 uh, boric acid price just to you know, err on the side of conservatism, then our 10 tonnes of uh, boric acid is worth about $5,000 and our cost to produce then a tonne of lithium, net of that boron as a credit is only $2,000, $2,200, which of course does put Rhyolite Ridge or will put Rhyolite Ridge in the, squarely in the bottom of the cost quarter or the bottom quarter of the cost curve, but also it will actually be the world's lowest cost lithium producer on those numbers. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. The lithium market has taken a bit of a hit uh, this year. Uh, what's your expectation around price when Rhyolite Ridge should be in production, what, 21, 22? Yes, that's right. So we, we, our scheduled product, start of production would be late in 2021 at this stage. So I think firstly a point is that, you know, the, the price that we're seeing today um, doesn't have a large impact on, on us and what we're going to be doing in 2021 and, and beyond. Um, se secondly, you know, Rhyolite Ridge is a very, very large and hence long life will be a long life project. So again, short term price fluctuations, um, you know, aren't a, a real significant uh, issue for us. Um, I think, though, that um, th there's two other factors that mean that you know Rhyolite Ridge is a standout project in the, in the lithium space and that is that and it, regardless of the cost uh, or the pricing of lithium and, and that is two things one is because it's so low cost because of that valuable contribution from boron it's it's insulated to some extent from price fluctuations of lithium and secondly it's in the United States and the United States is very clearly saying both the corporations and and the government are saying that they want to have domestic supply of lithium. So um, I think those factors are very, very important when you're, when you're looking at, you know, what are the pricing, what, what the price of lithium is going to do going forward and, and how does that impact on Rhyolite Ridge? Um, you know, it's a unique project because it's big, it's long life, it's in the United States and it's low cost. Now, our, our own views on, on the pricing it's hard to say where it's going to be in 2022 and beyond, but we think it'll be higher than where it is now. Um, there is certainly an oversupply at present that's been created by a lot of new spodumene production coming on stream. Now, that all of that spodumene is a mineral concentrate, and it all today, it all gets sent to China for processing. So that there's actually some complexity around, well, where's the oversupply? Is it in the spodumene or is it the lithium that's coming out of the Chinese conversion plants? Um, we think over the next year or two that that'll play out and, and with the increasing demand, which is projected to be about an increase of about 20% per year in demand for lithium, 
that oversupply question will go away anyway. Um, and if if it happens that the prices stay lower for a bit longer because EV uh, take-ups are slower than what people are anticipating, again, being at the bottom of the cost curve is the best place to be regardless of what the commodity prices are doing. Mm. Okay. The interesting thing about the boric acid market, of course, is uh, although it's, I think, what, $3 billion, $3.5 billion, I think uh, in terms of tonnage, it's probably, what, uh, 2 million tonnes a year, is it? Uh, yes, it's, it's, a, it's around that order. Um, I mean, what happens is that it, the 2 million tonnes is expressed as tonnes of B2O3, which is boric oxide, and then, you know, converting boric oxide into other borate products like boric acid. Well, boric acid is 56% B2O3, so there's, there's uh, you know, 2 million tonnes of um, boric oxide converts into a larger tonnage of the actual product that you end up producing. I guess uh, some people might uh, suggest that at your planned production rates, there could be some dislocation caused by the entry of Rhylite Ridge into the market? I think, that, well, that's a fair comment, but um, I guess the counter to that is two things. One is that um, two hundred. We're, we're, we're aiming to produce about 200,000 tonnes of boric acid. The, the boric acid uh, market is, um, is a component of the overall boron market. And at 200,000 tonnes, we'll probably be producing around about uh, 10 to 12 percent of the boric acid market so it's a large component but it's not you know it's not 50 percent of it it's a, it's a, a, it's a manageable amount the other thing though the two other factors that are important are that the boric acid and boron market generally but the boric acid market is growing quite healthily at sort of between four and six percent compound annual growth there are areas of specialty use, which are growing even faster than that. So there's opportunities there. And importantly, the Rio Tinto's boron mine in California, which produces about 30% of the world's borates and about 50% of the world's boric acid, uh, is a very mature mine. It's been in operation for 100 years. It's got a a limited life now. it can't. It's highly unlikely that it would expand production because that would just shorten a lot mine life, and so you've got this situation where one of the big global producers of boron uh, in the United States is actually in the final phases of its life, and so there is an opportunity for a, a new producer to come in and obviously. Uh, place into the growing demand, but also replace eventually a a mine that's getting towards the end of its life. And I think that's a very important factor in the the sort of boron supply and demand equation, because uh, there are no other big borate deposits outside of Turkey that are slated for production anytime soon. So, um, you know, having an alternative supply in addition to that coming from Turkey is very, very important to the large consumers. Mm. Um, it'd be remiss of me, of course, not to uh, ask about what the company's view is on potential competition for the market going forward, for boron, that is, uh, given Rio Tinto does have that uh, Yada lithium boron project in uh, Serbia. It's interesting you ask that question because 
There are only two large lithium boron deposits that we know of anywhere in the world, and that is Rhyolite Ridge, our project, and the Yadar deposit of Rio Tinto's located in Serbia. Um, I think fairly recently Rio came out and said that uh, they will give an update on that project in about 18 months or 24 months' time. Uh, and if you look at that project, it's, you know, it's been, Rio been working on it for more than a decade. Um, so it's not being rapidly bought into production. And so we, A, we think that Rhyolite Ridge will, is likely to be in production before Yadar is, uh, and that's important. Um, it's also, Rhyolite Ridge has some other big advantages over Yadar. It's, it's location in uh, Nevada in the United States and also in the Pacific region. So it can also supply into Asia from the west coast of the US is important versus Yadar in Serbia, which is not that far from Turkey. So that that project in production would have to compete more directly with the Turkish supply than we would. Um, mm -hmm. The other big advantage is just in the low cost nature of the deposits. Now, Rio have published that their um, their cutoff, economic cutoff, um, used in their uh, resource and reserve statement or resource statements for Yado is about $300 a tonne. So that's where they cut off and say anything that's got less than $300 a tonne um, is not included in their statements. Rhyolite Ridge, uh, and that cost of $300 reflects the fact that it's a, it would be a deep underground mine with complex processing. Rhyolite Ridge, on the other hand, is uh, simple geology. It's at surface. It's open pitable. Right, and the mineralisation's 20 metres thick, right from surface, and our our economic cutoff costs are $50 a ton, so you know, one sixth of the amount. So, you know, we, we think that Rhyolite Ridge has got some really significant advantages over Yada. Now, uh, the company has said that uh, well, you have Fleur, the, the best of the engineering groups out there, doing a DFS, in, and that's expected to be released in this current September quarter. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it's uh, well. It'll be completed in the current quarter, and you expect to release it sometime shortly after. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Soon as it's soon as it's completed, we will um, we will release it into the market. So the completion will be sort of towards the end of the September quarter. Right, and then you would move in, assuming a. a a favourable outcome, but given those robust uh, figures you've been mentioning, um, I think the market is certainly assuming that. You would move into the financing phase? Uh, yes, we, we will. That's the plan. And we've been working on that already for some time. Um, so I, I guess that the two things that we've been working a lot on uh, behind the scenes, if you like, whilst the DFS has been going on, uh, are the offtake agreements around lithium and boron. So we'll be able to say something about that, we hope, fairly soon, and the financing discussions. Now, in, in both cases, you've got to, well, you've got to bring all three of those things together, the, the offtakes, the DFS, and those financing discussions together to make the, allow the company to make a, uh, you know, its final investment decision. But yeah, they're all, they're all live at the moment, and they will um, culminate uh, shortly after the DFS is finished. Right. Okay. Now, finally, I can't let you go without asking uh, Ioneer, the, the name change. Um, was that a 
in-house competition or did you pay a consultant for the name? Uh, and if it was an in-house competition, what was the, the prize? A, a bottle of wine or a couple of nights in <laughs> Vegas? Or? <laughs> no, it was actually a, a night in Tonopah, Barry, <laughs> at the uh, <laughs> at the Mizpah Hotel. <laughs> um, no, so we, we did engage uh, a, a branding firm from the US to assist us with that process. And the name itself is meant to reflect... Uh, the combination of ion for lithium ion and Pioneer. Uh, given that this is the first large lithium deposit to be developed in the United States, there's only one existing deposit, uh, Silver, uh, Silver Peak, which is a very small brine operation, in, also located in Nevada. Um, and certainly, we will be the. This will be definitely the first large lithium boron deposit developed anywhere in the world. As I said, there's only two of them that we know of. And so that's where the pioneering aspect of the name mm. came from. Right. But there was no big prize tag. It was just a, a dinner and a bottle of red at the uh, Mizpah Hotel in the Jack Dempsey room, if anyone's ever been there. <laughs> okay, Bernard. Well, thanks for that rundown. It's been fantastic, exciting stuff. Uh, lots to look forward to in coming months. So all the best with it. And thanks for your time today. Pleasure, Barry. And thank you very much.